Open with me to Genesis chapter number 22 tonight. Genesis chapter number 22. I've got to confess to you that we're going to depart just a little bit from our theme tonight. But I believe it's the Lord's will. And I believe when the Lord gives you His mind on something, you just ought to follow it, don't you? And so we're going to do that tonight. And uh, in fact, Nick, if you want, just title this. You don't have to title it part 13 or anything. Uh, just title it, Seeing Christ in Isaac. Seeing Christ in Isaac. It's hard to come to Genesis chapter number 22 and fit it all into 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour or an hour and a half. Some of you all get nervous now, aren't you? But really, it's difficult. There's so much in this chapter. It touches so many areas of prophecy and provision, and power, that it's difficult to find a starting place, and I'd say it'd probably be difficult to find an ending place. You pray for me with that tonight. But I believe it'd be the Lord's will if we just looked over this passage and tried to find Christ in it everywhere that we can. And so I hope tonight, if if the Lord will help me to do it, that I can show you our Lord in this chapter and in some thoughts about chapter number 24, and we'll just have to see how long the Lord, how far the Lord lets us go. In verse number 1 of Genesis chapter 22, the Bible says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I. My son, he says, here am I, my son. And he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. It's a theological interest for you to underscore that phrase from me. It denotes a theophany. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. 
And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, I need your help. I'm incapable without you. And so, Lord, I pray you give me the unction and the power to preach, Lord. God, my, my, my heart's desire is that you'd make me as small as I can be, that you might magnify your name. Lord, that I might, uh, that I might decrease, God, that you might increase tonight. And I pray that each and every heart's need would be touched, and each and every heart's need would be met. And Lord, you know what needs to be accomplished in our lives. And so we leave it to your sweet Holy Spirit to do His office work and to do the work in our hearts that's so needed. Lord, thank You for Calvary. Thank You for the meaning of it. Thank You that it was effectual and thank You for an empty tomb. Bless the remainder of this service, Lord, we do pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you study through the book of Genesis, you'll find that it's rich in Bible types. In fact, it seems as though you can't go a couple chapters without finding Christ on the pages of the book of Genesis. And certainly one of the most vivid and picturesque uh, types of our Lord and Savior is found here in Genesis chapter number 22. I'm probably not going to tell you anything that you don't know tonight, but I hope that I can stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance about what Christ did for you and did for me. As you look through the Word of God, you find in Adam a picture of Christ. You find in Abel a picture of Christ. You find in Isaac a picture of Christ. You find in Joseph a picture of Christ. And over and over and over again, some of these men, you find various pictures of Christ. The Lord said to search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which speak of me. And so tonight I want us to draw three pictures that we find in Genesis chapter 22 and in chapter 24. Uh, we know the story very well. The Lord speaks to Abraham, and Abraham responds with the answer of faith. And by the way, it was an answer of faith. He says, Here I am, Lord. Let me say, when we won't respond to the call of God, it's an act of doubt and unbelief. I see it all the time, and I'm sure you do too. God is dealing and stirring upon a heart. God is dealing with a man, and they push away the sweet wooing of the Holy Spirit of God, and they say, no, thank you, Lord, I'm all right for now. That's an act of doubt and unbelief. But the heart of faith responds with obedience. He says, here I am, Lord. God asked something of Abraham that Abraham did not expect. He says, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. You know, I'm sure in Abraham's heart and mind, that was a crushing revelation of God to him. I'm sure that there was some soul searching that Abraham had to do as he examined what his response would be to God. But we find that Abraham responded in obedience. Don't you imagine that it, it panged the heart of Moses, or of Moses, listen at me, of Abraham, to think about giving up that boy that he loved so dearly. In fact, the Bible puts an emphasis on it. Whom thou lovest. You say, didn't he love Ishmael? Yes, he loved Ishmael. And yet we find that the child of promise is the only one that's reckoned. It says, whom thou lovest, whom thou lovest. But in response to the divine will, 
we find that Abraham responds in obedience and is willing to give his only begotten son. You say, what's the significance there? And by the way, we're not, this isn't seeing pictures of God the Father and Abraham, but can I tell you that Abraham is a picture of God the Father. Uh, you say, well, where did God the Father get his marching orders from? Abraham got them from God. And let me not overstep anything. I'm not implying that there's any disharmony in the Godhead. But let me just say it was the divine will of the Godhead that Jesus Christ die for your sins and for my sins. It wasn't just the will of the Father, it was also the will of the Son and the will of the Holy Spirit that Christ be offered for your sins and for my sins. It was a cooperative will. It was a collective will. And we find that God sent His only begotten Son into this world for you and for me. We find that Abraham responds in obedience, and that's beautiful, and that's picturesque. But I want us to notice, not the faithful father, But I want us to take a moment and look at the submissive son. You know, as we study the life of Isaac, sometimes we think of Isaac being just a little boy, seven, eight, nine years old. I would propose to you that Isaac was much, much older than that. You say, preacher, why do you believe that? You ever had enough wood for a bonfire before? Imagine how much wood it would take to consume a human sacrifice. Then imagine taking all that wood and laying it on the back of a seven, eight-year-old boy. No, Isaac was not just a little lad. I know the Bible calls him a lad. And by the way, the Hebrew word for lad denotes many different age periods. But we find that Isaac was very likely a grown man, probably anywhere between his early 20s and maybe his his mid-30s, in the prime of his life. But we find that he was submissive to the will of his father and to the will of God. I want you to notice three things about this submissive son. I believe the Lord will help me as we preach this, don't you? I want to say that he's a picture of Christ in the time that they traveled. Look at verse number 3 and 4 again. The Bible says, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Notice on verse 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. You say, what's the significance here? Well, I'd like to tell you that there was another time when a son was reckoned to be dead for three days and for three nights. You see, in the mind and heart of Abraham, and I understand that Isaac was not dead at this point. I understand that he came off the altar. And let me say that, thank God in heaven, that we could come off the cross, that he might go on the cross. Aren't you thankful for that? But we find that in the mind and heart of Abraham, for three days as he made that journey, Isaac, the Bible says, was as good as dead. He just supposed that he was going to sacrifice his only son. He was following the command of God and he reckoned him to be dead. The Bible teaches us very clearly that as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so also shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. You see, our Savior, when He was crucified, you say, that's, that's elementary, preacher. I'm going to give you something college level in a second, so just hang on. Uh, we find that our Lord, when He was crucified, was buried, and for three days and three nights, three 24-hour periods, our Lord laid in the tomb was dead in the hearts and minds of his follower. 
But I'm thankful that the Lord in heaven did not believe him to be dead. You see, you can believe what you want, but I believe Christ was very active during that three or four days. I don't believe he was just in a state of soul sleep because I don't believe anybody's in a state of soul sleep. I believe he was very active in that time. You see, I believe during that time period was when he was ascending down or descending down into captivity and taking captivity captive. Preacher, what do you mean? The Bible teaches that the Old Testament saints did not dwell in a place uh, known as heaven, but dwelled in a place called paradise. Now, you can believe what you want about this, but I believe as we study scriptures, we find that paradise was a place in the heart of the earth that was adjacent uh, to hell, that there was a great gulf fixed in between it, great chasm that no man could pass from one side to the other. And the Bible teaches that those Old Testament saints were not yet in communion and fellowship with the God in heaven, but they were in a place of waiting. Not a place of purgatory, but a place of waiting. The Bible teaches that when uh, Christ died upon the cross, He descended down into the lower parts of the earth. You say, what was He doing? He was going to get them saints. He took that captive group and he led captivity captive and he ascended on high. Got the sweet Holy Spirit, the comforter from heaven for you and for me and brought back gifts for men. And he did this in this three day, three night period. And so I believe the time that they traveled is significant. Look at verse number six. The Bible says, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. Notice it again. Laid it upon Isaac, his son. I believe Isaac is a picture of Christ in the time that they traveled. But I believe he's a picture of Christ in the burden that he bore. He bore the very wood upon which he was to be sacrificed. This same truth is taught us of our Lord and Savior. In fact, we dealt with it in a sermon just about two weeks ago or a week and a half ago. Simon the Cyrenian, a man that was passing by, was called out of the crowd to bear the cross. But the Bible says that he bore it after Jesus. Our Lord and Savior had his uh, crucifixion cross placed upon his shoulders and he carried that cross on the way up to Calvary. By the same token, Isaac, as a submissive son, had this put upon him. Let me say that this is picturesque. Say, preacher, why? God created. By the way, Abraham claved the wood for the sacrifice. Do you know God in heaven created the tree that he was crucified on? He created the tree that he was crucified on. He nourished it. He allowed it to grow. He brought it up in strength and in power and in uh, solidity. And he prepared that tree. Is that not indicative of God's providential plan for you and for me? Can I say to you tonight that Calvary was... Uh, the church is not an audible. You hear me? The church isn't God calling an audible. It's not God trying to pick up the pieces of a broken dream and build something secondary. But the church was always God's eternal plan for the redemption of mankind. The cross of Calvary was always God's plan to pay man's sin debt. So we find that the burden that he bore is significant. I want you to notice a third thing as we see this submissive son. Look at verse number 7. The Bible says, And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood... But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there. 
and laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now, you're going to miss this if you believe Isaac was just a little toddler. You're going to miss this if you believe he is six, seven, eight years old. But you've got to remember he's a grown man. He's big enough to carry the wood that's going to burn and consume his body in their own hearts and minds. He's getting ready to lay himself upon this altar. And he stops and he looks at his father and he says, Dad, Dad, you say that's unscriptural, preacher. Aren't you thankful by the Holy Spirit of God we cry, Abba? He said, Dad, Dad. Abraham says, here, my son. And don't you know, Abraham may have thought he was in trouble. (laughs) Isaac says, I see the wood and I see the fire, but we don't have a lamb. There's no lamb. Where's the lamb for this sacrifice? And we're going to talk a little bit more about what Abraham said, but he says, my son, God shall provide himself a lamb. But I think Isaac fully knew what was signified in those words. I don't think Isaac was deceived in trickery upon that altar. I believe Isaac understood exactly. You say, why do you believe that? Because when they got to the top of the mountain, he allowed himself to be bound and lifted. You say, he couldn't help it. He was bound. I don't know about you, neighbor, but you take a grown man, you tie him up. He's going to be tough to catch even if he is tied up. Especially for an old man, hundred and something years old. No, as a submissive son, he laid upon that altar and was ready to be given and offered. You say, what's significant? Though government authorities took and bound our Lord, he wasn't truly bound by them. He wasn't bound by them. You know what he did when they came in the garden? Can I just talk for a minute? Is that all right? When he came in the garden, when they came for him, he said, whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. And you know what happened? The sheer power of his title. I am he. By the way, that's the title of God. I am, I am that I am. I am he. That's the self-existent one. That's that's the ever-eternal one. That's the self-eternal one. That is the one that needs no sustenance from anyone. That's the one that sustains himself. That's the one that was before ever the world was. And Christ says, I am He. And the power of His words, like a thunderbolt, knocked those men backwards. They didn't take Him against His will. He said, no man taketh my life from me. I lay it down that I might take it up again. You know what they said to him? They said, let me just paraphrase it. They said, you know, you're about to get you're about to get into trouble if you go into Jerusalem. You know the authorities are looking for you, Master. You know the authorities seek to slay you. You're going to get into trouble if you go. You know what he said? He said, for this hour came I into the world. The Bible says he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. The cross was not unexpected to our Lord. As a willing, submissive son, it was in the obedience that he displayed. He came, he laid down his life for you and for me, according to the divine will of the Godhead and of the Father in heaven. He laid down his life. But we find in this passage that at least for the immediate narrative, the likenesses between Isaac and our Lord cease. Because there was something different that took place. You see, an angel came and rescued Isaac off that altar. 
But can I say I'm thankful that though he could have called 10,000 angels, he bled and died for you and me. Though he could have called a legion of angels at his disposal. You say, why a legion? Because that was the biggest number they had to express. <laughs> not because not because 10,000 was the most that he could have called, but because that was the biggest number that they had to express. He could have had unlimited angels at his disposal. Come and pull him off that cross. It wasn't the Roman authorities. It wasn't the nails that held him there. It was love for you, love for me. But we find the stories different for Isaac. We find that Abraham lifts his hand, has the knife in his hand, and is just getting ready to plunge it into the heart of his son. By the way, can I say, and I know this is maybe going along with our theme, and we may even talk about it next week some, but the story of Isaac and Abraham on Mount Moriah, as it relates to faith in the life of Abraham, it's not one of sacrifice. Do you hear me? It's one of faith. It's not one of sacrifice. When he gave up Ishmael, that was a sacrifice. When he laid Isaac on the altar, that wasn't, that wasn't a sacrifice. You know why? Because Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse number 19 says that he reckoned that God was able to raise him from the dead. It was an act of faith. He said, God, you've made this promise to me. And so, though I may slay him, you'll have to raise him. You'll have to raise him. But we find that the angel caught the hand of Abraham. He said, Abraham, Abraham, that's significant. God says your name once, you better listen. But he says it twice, it's important, amen? He catches his hand and he says, uh, Now I know that thou fearest God. Thou didst not withhold thine son, thine only son. I told you to underscore this, from me. I believe that denotes a theophany in this passage. You say, Why? Because the angel, the angel had no right to take. The sacrifice wouldn't have been made to the angel. The faith wasn't expressed to an angel. It was made to God in heaven. And I believe this was Christ in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. The expression, uh, the express image of the glory of God, the manifestation of God to mankind. I believe it was Christ that held that hand. You believe what you want about it. Isaac is taken off the altar, and we know the story very well. But I want to say we not only see Christ in the submissive son, but we see him in a substitutionary sacrifice. Look what the Bible says. The angel caught Abraham's hand, said there's no need to sacrifice your son. By the way, God does not bluff us. That's one of the great misnomers about this passage. When you try to correlate this passage with personal sacrifice, then it appears as though God is bluffing Abraham and just trying to see whether or not Abraham loved him and how much he loved him. But that's not what God was doing. God was testing Abraham's faith. And Abraham exhibited his faith in Almighty God. But notice what it says in verse number 12. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad. Neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lift up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Isaac was a picture of Christ up until this point. But in many ways, Isaac also pictures the sinner. 
laid helplessly upon this altar. And a substitutionary sacrifice took place that day. Isaac came off the altar and Abraham lifted up his eyes. By the way, you couldn't take him off the altar except there was a substitutionary sacrifice. You hear me? The altar was built, the fire prepared, the wood laid in order. A sacrifice was going to take place. You say, preacher, what are you saying? I'm saying this to the sinner tonight. I'm saying that a sacrifice will take place. It's either his sacrifice on Calvary for the payment of your sins or the sacrifice of your eternal soul in the appeasement of God's judgment. It's one of the two, one of the two. But we find that there's significance in this ram caught in a thicket. Let me say that this sacrifice represented the person. This episode represented the person of this sacrifice. Oh, I like what Abraham said. I don't even know if he knew what he said, to be honest. We could debate it. We could discuss what the real connotation of it is. But hey, neighbor, listen, let me just keep on thinking it no matter what you think about it one way or the other. Isaac looks and where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Abraham says, my son, God shall provide himself a lamb. Let's stop and pause. Let's say that a little differently. Let's say God shall provide himself a lamb. It speaks of who the person that would take the place on the altar would be. This ram was a picture, not of a good man, and not just of a moral man, and not just of a great teacher or a great prophet, but God Himself robed in flesh. God did not just provide a lamb. God provided Himself as a lamb for the burnt sacrifice, for the burnt offering. It's significant that it was a ram. Rams typically were not offered. Now, you say, but there's rams spoken of at select times. I know that, but usually it's a lamb. And Abraham said there'd be a lamb. And John the Baptist answered the question when he said, Behold the Lamb of God. But here in Genesis 22, we don't see a lamb, we see a ram. You say, what's the significance? A ram is nothing but a lamb that's come to the fullness of its time. It's a grown lamb. You say, what does that mean? It tells me this sacrifice was not going to take place that day or the next day or the next day or the next year or the next hundred years. It tells me that there was a time frame that had to be fulfilled. It tells me that in God's timing and in God's way, He would provide Himself a lamb. It tells me, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. It tells me that God had a process of time that had to be accomplished. Listen, when Christ came, and it can't be over, it can't be overemphasized, the providential hand of God had prepared the way for the coming Messiah. It had to be at that time. It couldn't have been later. You say, why? Because the, the Romans came in and destroyed the temple. It couldn't have been earlier. You say, why? Because the road systems that were needed for the whole world to be taxed weren't in place. God providentially made a way. And when Christ came, it wasn't a minute too soon nor a minute too late. God knew what he was doing. Let me say that it wasn't just the fullness of time. But for you and I, he paid for the fullness of our sin. He paid for every sin that you've ever committed. Past, present, future. 
You say, preacher, are you saying that if I sin, it doesn't matter? No, what shall we continue in sin? That grace may abound? God forbid. But I'm saying this, sin whatever you may try to do, it can't undo what Christ did for you on Calvary. He's paid for all of it. It may knock you out of fellowship with Him. It may put a fly in the ointment of your communion with God. But it's not going to change your relationship to Him. You'll always be His child we find that the person is spoken of. But I want you to notice a second element. I want you to notice that the provision is spoken of. Look at verse 14. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. Now that's one of the uh, sevenfold names of God coupled with Jehovah, Yahweh. That was the Old Testament national name of God to Israel. You say, what, give me an example. Well, if you used to ask someone, do you believe in God? You could ask a Muslim if they believe in God, and they'd say yes. But if you asked them, do you believe in Jesus Christ as God? And they'd say no. There's a difference between a generic name or a general name, such as Elohim in the Old Testament, the Hebrew name for God. That's the name that's used whenever He created the world. And by the way, despite what the Muslims want to tell you and want to believe, it is a plural name. It means gods. It's the Trinity. It's the Godhead. Elohim is spoken of. But this is a different name that's used. And there's several different names coupled with Jehovah. Jehovah Nisi and Jehovah Shaddai and all these different names. But the name given here is Jehovah Jireh. And literally what it means is the provisional or the uh, sufficient God. The all-sufficient one. By the way, the name Jehovah means the, the self-existent one. It means the one that needs no one to help in his existence. He is all-sufficient. And so when it speaks of Jehovah with something, Jehovah Shalom, for instance, the one that sustains peace and provides it. Here we find the one that provides provision, the one that meets your needs. You say, what's the significance? Abraham called God Jehovah Jireh in this place because he knew that it was the Lord that was going to provide the lamb. It wasn't going to come from man, man's devices, man's flesh, man's will, man's wishes but it was going to come from the eternal heart of God. Can I tell you tonight that it was, and I know, listen, I know maybe we treaded this a few minutes ago, but you just let me tread on, amen. Uh, can I say that it was God who gave His Son? God, for God so loved the world that He gave, gave. God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ Died, He commendeth His love. He showed His love toward us. He gave His Son. The Bible says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. You ever want to know how much the Lord loves you? It, he loves you so much that it pleased Him to bruise His own Son that He might redeem you. That's how much He loves you. Neighbor, that's deeper than I can imagine. I can't fathom that. I don't know if you know how deep that is. I, I, we're, we're in deep waters when we start talking about that. The Lord loves you so much that it joyed His heart to bruise His Son for you. But it wasn't the Romans that took Him. It wasn't the Jews that offered Him up. It wasn't the religious crowd. It wasn't the worldly crowd. In a sense, it was our sins. But let me say that if He didn't want to go to the cross, He wouldn't have gone to the cross. We see the provision of this sacrifice, but we see the place of this substitutionary sacrifice. Abraham says, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. 
It's interesting that God denoted a specific place where Isaac was to be sacrificed. We typically don't find this in the Bible. In fact, all of the other places where Abraham built an altar, it was an altar and a place of his choosing, so to speak. I mean, he may have been, there may have been a region that God wanted him to dwell in, but Abraham chose where he wanted to plant that, that altar. But we find in this passage that God told him of a place. The Bible says Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and saw the place afar off. And finally, at the end of the passage, he says, in the Mount of the Lord, that's what he calls Mount Moriah, the Mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. I've not got time to trail you through a multitude of Scripture references, but you'll find if you'll study that Bible carefully, you'll find that that place, Mount Moriah, was significant. We don't know it as Mount Moriah in the New Testament. We know it as a different name. It's called Calvary. Calvary. Golgotha. The place of our Lord's sacrifice. Neighbor, you believe what you want about this? But I believe, I believe that probably... I believe when they dropped the post of that cross down and it hit something hard and, and noisy sounding, it was probably the top of that altar. That's how much I believe that it was the same place. I don't believe it was just similar. I don't believe it was just regionally the same. I literally believe that the place where the Son of God hung was the very place where Isaac had been laid. I believe it was the very, very place. Let me say that place is significant. That region's significant. That city's significant. You know, it's the most coveted city in the world right now. And it always has been. They don't listen, neighbor. They don't fight crusades over Knoxville, Tennessee. If they do, I'll be ready. Amen. But they don't do it. They don't fight crusades over New York City or Los Angeles. God help us. I'd be happy if it just fell off in the ocean. Kerplunk. Amen. I'm glad my brother's back first, but... <laughs> Hey, listen, but that city, there's something special about it. Wars are fought over that city. Blood is shed over that city. To this day, the Muslims and the Jews are fighting over that city. All of the descendants of Ishmael have compassed about the children of promise and are doing everything they can to stomp out God's people because they want that city. What's significant about it? That city has a past, it has a present, and it's got a future. That city has a past. It was the place where the temple sat. It was the place where untold billions of gallons of blood came flowing down from that mountain and could not sacrifice, could not satisfy the heart of Almighty God. But one day on the cross of Calvary, just one drop was good enough to satisfy God's judgment. It was the place where altars were built. It was the place where lambs were sacrificed. It's got a past. It's got a present. It's still being fought over. But let me say it's got a future too. The Bible says there's coming a day when our Lord will return in power and in glory. He'll step out, set His feet on the Mount of Olives, split it in two. In that place... There's going to be a new temple built. In that place, there'll be a new city built. In that place will be the hub of the worship of Almighty God. 
That city's got a future. This place is significant. But let me say, and I'm just going to run through this. I'm just going to run through chapter number 24 and pick stuff up as I go. Let me say that we see a picture of of Christ in Isaac as the substitutionary son. We see him in the picture of the ram as the substitutionary sacrifice. The submissive son and the substitutionary sacrifice. But let me say in chapter number 24, and I'm just going to touch on it. We see a picture of the soon coming Savior. You know, if you read, and I know, listen, I, I'm, I got enough common sense. I know I don't look like it, amen. But I got enough common sense to understand that Isaac came off of that mountain. But if you read Genesis 22, 23, and 24, you'll find that Isaac is not made mention of after this point. As far as Scripture record is concerned, he is left on Mount Moriah. Now, we know that he probably came down. We know that he went back home. But as far as the narrative of Scripture is concerned, we never see him come down off the mountain. Genesis chapter 23, we find the death of Sarah. Sarah, in many ways, presents to us national Israel. And let me say that that Israel is not dead nationally. But after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord in 70 A.D. under the Roman Emperor Titus, he wasn't the emperor at that time, but under Titus, one of his generals, they sacked Jerusalem. One of his generals took a torch and threw it alight into the temple and set on fire the uh, temple of God, Herod's temple. And they were trodden underfoot. We live in the times of the Gentiles. The Jews are put away as far as the way that God deals with them as a people scripturally right now. Some people have said this, and I, I understand what they're saying. I might contend with some of the terminology, but, but I believe it's basically true that God clicked the stopwatch on the Jewish nation. But we find that the next place we see Isaac, he went up on the mountain. He went up. We don't see him coming back down. Until chapter 24, we find that Abraham commissions his steward, Eliezer, to go out and to call a bride for Isaac. And the next place we see it, let me just say this. We see first off the commissioning for this bride. There was a plan to call this bride out. There was someone sent to catch and to gather this bride. You say, who's that? Eliezer the steward is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God sent out to do the office work in our hearts and to save sinners, to show them their need of Calvary. God the Father gave the comforter to us. And He abides in our hearts and He comforts us and convicts us. You say, who is it that tells a sinner he's lost? It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's who makes a sinner aware that he's lost. No man come unto me except my Father draw him. How does he do that? The Holy Spirit makes the sinner aware of his need of Calvary. That's how that takes place. There's a commissioning, but there's a calling that takes place. We find that whenever Eliezer goes out and he finds Rebecca, there's a lot of things. Boy, I don't have time. It's a whole other sermon. He finds her by a well, by the way. <laughs> Go through your Bible. Wells are significant. He finds her by a well and draws enough water. For her and for herself, he draws that. Christ said, come unto me, all ye that are thirsty. All ye that are thirsty, I will give you a drink. He said, if you'll drink of the water that I give you, it shall be in you a well of water springing up into everlasting life. 
The Holy Spirit is pictured as a fountain that becomes a well in our hearts and in our lives, a reserve of the power and presence of God in our lives. And so he begins to woo her, and they go back to Daddy's house, and Eliezer eats with everybody. And We've heard the story many, many times. But what it comes down to is that Rebecca makes up her mind that she's going to marry Isaac. She's never seen him before, but she loves him. She's never spoken to him before audibly, but she's devoted to him. In fact, the only thing she has of him is some tokens that Eliezer has brought to give to her. Just some evidences of his riches. Just some tokens of his goodness. But Rebecca has never seen Isaac before. But there comes a day when she does see him. The next time we see Isaac... He's coming out into the field to catch away his bride. (laughs) Can I tell you what the Lord did for you and me? You just bear with me, okay? We're almost done. Can I tell you that the Holy Spirit of God came to this sinner's soul and wooed him with the goodness of heaven? I've never seen my Lord before. I've never, with these physical eyes, I've never seen Him before, but I've seen His goodness. And I understand that all the inheritance, though it belongs to me in Him, that I've not possessed it yet. I understand that in this world we may have tribulation and sorrow and suffering, but the Lord's given me just a few tokens of His goodness. He's given me the Holy Spirit of God who is the earnest of our redemption. We talked about that last week. You say, what's the earnest? That's the earnest money. That's the down payment that He's given to you and that He's given to me. Just a little taste, just a little token, just a little working of God in our lives. And the Holy Spirit of God indwells us. I've never seen Him. But the Bible says, whom having not seen ye love... And rejoice with joy unspeakable. You've never seen Him either. But let me ask you this tonight. Do you love Him tonight? You've never seen Him. How could you love Him? Because you've got the token. You've got the token. You've got that little bit of of His presence with you. You've got the Holy Spirit of God living within you. You've never seen Him. But you're devoted to Him. You never spoke to Him. Listen, I've never heard the voice of my Savior as an audible voice before. He's spoken to my heart through the Holy Spirit, but never an audible voice before. Oh, but we ought to be devoted to Him. Just as though we communed with Him in an audible way, because we commune with Him in a deeper and stronger way than that. And let me make you a promise. Let me make you a promise, though the journey may be great in this world. Let me make you a promise, though you may have sorrow and trial and tribulation in this world. Let me make you a promise that there's a bridegroom coming to meet us. He met he met her in the field. You say, what's the field a picture of? The Gospels tell us that the field is a picture of the world. He's coming for you. He's coming for me. We find that he's coming soon. I wonder if you're living prepared for his coming. I want to ask you a simple question, then we're going to have the invitation. Listen, if the Lord came back tonight, would you be satisfied with where your walk with Him is? Would you be satisfied? If tonight was, if yesterday was the last day that you'd ever lived in completion for Him, would you be satisfied? Or are there some areas of your life that you know you need to give over? Listen, tonight, if God's spoken to your heart in some area, some way, I invite you to come meet with the Lord, get it settled tonight.